on NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Remember those flashing pop-ups that appeared on your monitor in the early days of the Internet? And if you just clicked it, you'd win $5,000. What luck until the realization that you aren't getting $5,000. Instead, you got hacked. Since then, hacking groups have gotten much bolder and sophisticated. They've scaled up their attacks, targeting small towns and hospitals, and they use complicated malware to lock up those big systems. What did 2023 look like in terms of cybersecurity, and what can we expect for 2024? Joining us after the break to take a closer look at those questions is the managing editor and host of Click Here, Dina Temple-Raston. Click Here is a weekly cyber and intelligence news podcast from Recorded Future News. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in a moment. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Dina, it's great to have you back. Hi there. So Dina, first let's just start with who the major players are in hacking this year. Oh, this year, the major players, as the same as last year, are Russian hackers, and in particular, a group called Lockbit. Uh, let me just give some context as to why the Russians appear to be uh, so prevalent in this world. And part of it is, is there's a wink and a nod between cyber criminals in Russia, or Russian-speaking cyber criminals more generally, and the Russian government. Uh, the wink and the nod has to do with, as long as you don't hack us, We will allow you to go and hack our adversaries or anybody outside of Russia. You can keep the money and we won't arrest you. Mm. They like the sort of chaos that that creates. So with that as a backdrop, it's not too surprising that a Russian group would be the one that was the most prevalent in ransomware last year. And that group is this Lockbit group, which is mostly Russian. And it's really different from your average ransomware group because they've really tried to professionalize the idea of ransomware. Um, They even have a logo. And they have this logo that's like a black and red and white writing, and uh, they put it on everything. Right. You you spoke to John DiMaggio. He's a researcher at a cybersecurity company called Analyst One. And he went undercover and spent a lot of time with the Lockbit group. And here's what he said about the group's unusual twist on marketing. 
not only did they create, you know, this this logo, but then they at one point paid people to tattoo it on their bodies. And, and I just, when I heard that, I'm like, there is no way anyone is going to tattoo the name of a ransomware brand in their logo on their bodies. And, and there's quite a few people who did it. Uh, and it was for between $500 and $1,000. That's just crazy to me. So the first question that comes to mind for me, Dina, is why would you market criminal activity? Well, because if you're marketing, if their their business model is something called ransomware as a service. Ransomware, and, and they have professionalized that as well. And what that has to do with is we can provide for you, if you want to hack someone, everything you need, soup to nuts, we can get you access. We can get you the malware you, you need. We can give you a step-by-step process on how to actually conduct the attack. So if you think of that, and we'll take a cut. Or you pay us a flat fee and you do it as much as you want. And when you think about that being the model, it's the same reason why anybody brands anything. Don't use us. Use Lockbit. Don't use these other guys. There's actually, um, it's almost like a Yelp system Hmm. in the sense that people actually review their stuff. Their malware is good. Use this ransomware group. Use Lockbit because their malware always works. If there's a problem, they have customer service. So if you think about it in terms of a business, it's an illicit business, but if you think about it in terms of a business, it makes sense why they would do that. That's quite a departure from what we've typically seen in, in pop culture, for instance, about hackers. They're secretive. They're these sort of shadowy groups that, that move you know, in, in these hidden corridors. And here, there's a marketing strategy. When did we see that change? We've seen that sort of slowly rise up in the last couple of years. I think cyber has really changed in the last couple of years. One of the reasons we have the podcast and and why Recorded Future News even exists is that cyber used to be this thing that, you know, governments and Fortune 500 companies needed to know about, right? Because they were the ones that were getting hacked. You know, Chinese hackers were stealing intellectual property or... uh, you know, they were locking up systems to, to, to have some sort of ransom is what the Russians used to do. But now it's, it's much bigger than that. Now the idea is everything is hackable. And so what used to be sort of a nice-to-know thing has now become a need-to-know thing. As you mentioned in the intro, you know, you're starting to get cities that are getting hacked. You're getting hospitals that are getting hacked. And so people who never had to think about uh, cybersecurity in the past, now it's sort of in their daily lives. Schools get hacked. Mm -hmm. So your kids can't go to school because everything's shut down. Why does the Lockbit Group have so much influence? Is Is it just that tie to the Russian government or is there something else at play? Their malware is really good. They're very good at branding themselves. And, you know, again, it's sort of these reviews that you'll get from people. I use their malware. It was awesome. There were there was a bug or there was something in the system that I wasn't expecting was there. All I had to do was call Lockbit and they fixed it for me. So it's really sort of a word of mouth. And that's what's made them be responsible for over 44 percent of the ransomware attacks we saw last year. Well, one of Lockbit's victims included a small Canadian town called St. Mary's. And you spoke to the town's mayor, Al Strathdy, earlier this year. And he's, here's what he told you about the attack. You feel like the world's going to end as you get into it more and more. And you think, you know, what has happened? It's like being robbed. It's like we're invaded and robbed. It was a smash and grab. Well, as you mentioned, Lockbit also targets hospitals. They threaten to release hospital data unless they're paid a ransom. What does that mean for care? What it means for care and what it means for even HIPAA rules, right? So the the University of Minnesota had a report 
that came out a couple of months ago, and they found that ransomware incidents had increased in the hospital mortality rates uh, by sort of a small percentage. What they did is they estimated that between 2016 and 2021, between 42 and 67 Medicare patients died as a result of these these uh, hacks, you know, outages caused by ransomware attacks. Now, that doesn't sound like very many people, but remember, that's only in that small uh between 2016 and 2021, and that's only Medicare patients. Those are the only ones that they could track. And they expect the number is actually much bigger um, if you include all the other insurance. Well, last week, the Department of Health and Human Services announced an outline for cybersecurity strategy when it comes to healthcare facilities. According to the HHS, there's been a 278% increase in ransomware breaches into healthcare systems. How is the U.S. government handling the cybersecurity issues in, in healthcare specifically? Well, they want to start to create sort of a, a, a standard of cybersecurity. Um, you know, one of the really big issues was this year there was a huge hack that was called Move It. Move It is this uh, file transfer that you may not even know you're using. So if you're sending it to your tax guy or maybe your doctor is sending files from his office to the hospital for a hospital stay, they were using a program called Move It. You had no idea. They hacked in, so a, a group hacked into Move It and held it ransom and said, if you don't pay us a ransom, we're going to release all these files. And uh, three members of our Click Here team, in fact, got letters that said our uh, uh, personal information and the health information might have been compromised because mm-hmm. we were all in the same hospital group. That's what I mean when I say that this is just sort of completely changing in that you're, you you may not even have a huge online presence, but you still get caught by these groups. Well, then, how well positioned are U.S. institutions, schools, um, towns and cities, hospitals, to have a proactive approach to protection rather than a reactive approach to a hack? It's a great question. I mean, part of what we're seeing and the reason why ransomware continues to rise is that these ransomware groups, as the sort of... uh, larger organizations sort of twig on that they need to have these sort of cybersecurity protections, what they end up going after is the low-hanging fruit. And if you think about it, how many cities have a tech team or an IT team? How many schools do? And uh, because of that, hospitals do to a, a larger extent just because they have a lot of compliance rules that they have to have. And I would say in 2024, one of the groups that will probably we'll probably see a decline in these attacks on hospitals because they're going to be forced to do something. But how do you force a small town? How do you, how do you, how about a school district? And, uh, you know, they're stealing personal information of, you know, 10, 12, 14 year olds, right? Young kids. And they're hanging on to it in the idea that maybe later that information actually is worth more in the dark market that maybe later when they turn 18, they can assume their identities, open a bunch of credit cards, and it'll be a big sort of payday. That's what we're dealing with. Well, and a lot of places do have an IT team, but it's it's about making sure your computer's operating, the software you use internally is doing what it needs to do. But what I'm hearing from you and describing the kind of work Lockbit is doing, we're talking about a high level of training and expertise to try to block these cyber attacks. And that, or a budget. Or a budget. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, what is the economic proposition for a small town that's trying to protect itself against these hackers? How do they, how do they manage that? Is the U.S. government looking at ways to perhaps bolster 
some of the the resources that are needed. There's some of that. You know, there's the uh, CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure uh, Security Agency, easy to say, mm-hmm. CISA, um, has done a lot of work with trying to help schools, trying to help hospitals, try to help cities. Um, a lot of it is sort of low-hanging fruit stuff. So if you are, for example, use multi-factor authentication, I'm sure you do that here we at do. WAMU. Mm-hmm. We, we do it as well. If you have firewalls up, there are a lot of things that people aren't doing that are sort of the simple stuff, and, and the hackers are finding it. You know, not a lot of times they get into a company because the password was one, two, three, four, and they never bothered to change it. All they have to do is scan the internet and look for a particular vulnerability that wasn't patched. You know, when you have your, if you have an Apple phone, you know, they say, oh, there's a great vulnerability you need to patch tonight because people can get into your system. A lot of people don't do it. And if they don't do it, then that becomes, you know, an easy way for the hackers to get in. We're going to take a quick pause here. But when we return, we talk about the latest in the cyber war front in Russia and Ukraine. Back with more in a moment. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Let's get back to the conversation. Another defining moment in cyber attacks this year, the war in Ukraine. One of the most recent attacks has been on Ukraine's biggest mobile network operator, Kyiv Star. The attack has knocked out cell and internet service for millions of people. What more can you tell us? Well, this is a, a very big telecom in Ukraine. But what's interesting about it is if you had done something like that to Verizon or AT&T in this country, it would have been devastating, right? right? We all have contracts, et cetera, et cetera. In Ukraine, it doesn't work that way. So in Ukraine, there are no sort of like contracts that you're locked into for telecom. So what everybody's doing is just they're switching very quickly to another telecom provider takes about 10 minutes, and they get something called an eSIM, which basically you take a picture of a QR code that they send you, and you're up on online. So 
It's a bad hack. It's the worst telecom hack they've had uh, in quite some time, I think, since March. Uh, but at the same time, it's not as devastating as it would have been here. But it does show that Russia is still trying to go after Ukraine on the cyber battlefield. Well, the head of Star said in a video statement that they're working to restore communication on their network as soon as possible. Now, the war in Ukraine is being discussed by foreign policy experts as the first hybrid war involving cyber attacks. Give us a little more context for what that means. What's the difference between cyber being a tactic as opposed to a strategy? Uh, Now cyber is actually being folded into military campaigns. It's a specific component of the war. So maybe you take out a communication system and then, you know, tanks or, you know, infantry come in after it. Um, And what's interesting is that while the rest of us were sort of watching all the Uh, troops amass on the border in February uh, two years ago and wondering whether the Russians were going to come in or come out or or not come in. There was a secret mission that happened, and it was forces from U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, At first, just about a dozen. They showed up in Ukraine with civilian clothes on, and uh, they had something called a hunt kit with them. A hunt kit, uh, I I may be the only person outside the military who's actually picked one up. It, it, it's in a suitcase, like a James Bondian suitcase with the sides that pop out. And inside is a supercomputer. It weighs 40 pounds, like, the, like a big bag of dog food. And it's small enough to actually fit in the overhead compartment above because they fly commercial, they're going undercover, and obviously it's a suitcase you don't want to lose. So they roll these into Ukraine, and they say to Ukraine, look, we're here to help. They had discussed this and negotiated this beforehand. We want to see if Russia has left any malware on your critical infrastructure. Uh, so they just sat down next to Ukrainians and, and started looking for bad things. And, and so you're describing what was called the Hunt Forward operation. That was the name of this operation. And you met one of the U.S. operators from Cyber Command. Um, and for folks who don't know, that's the cyber unit of the Department of Defense. And he's the one who found Russian malware inside a Ukrainian network. And this is what he told you about it. So it would pop up a little message on screen saying, you can pay X amount to get your files back. However, it became obvious that there was no method for this to reverse the encryption it did. At the end of the day, you weren't getting your files back, period, and stop. It was designed to destroy them. It was a very complex piece of malware. Um, It had three stages that it went through. And this was my first time discovering something so complex in the wild. So this was in December, months before what many consider the start of the war in February. Why was it important for Ukraine to find this malware before the Russian invasion took place? For exactly the reason we were saying, that this is part, that they knew cyber was going to be part of a strategy to turn out the lights, take care of, uh, you know, communications to make military communications difficult for Ukrainian forces. So this is already part and parcel of things that Russia had done in the past, so they were expecting it. I think what was different about this was that um, they teamed up with U.S. Cyber Command and actually started pouring through these networks. And if you think about it, there's a, it's a bit of a trust fall, right? You have these uh, people you've never met before in the U.S. You think they're allies, but how do you know if they're not just going to drop a little malware there while they're saying they're cleaning up the Russians, right? So there's a lot of trust that has to go on there. So they're sitting side by side with Ukrainians. And they are going through their networks looking for any sort of anomalies. And they have long lists of things that they know the Russians have used, like the malware can be found, uh, you know, by searching for it. And they find these and they take them away. So we were the only people who actually talked to the operators who went to Ukraine. But then a couple of months ago, we actually went to Ukraine and we talked to the Ukrainian operators about it. 
And the the U.S. rightfully was kind of cagey about what exactly they did. But the Ukrainians told us they actually found during that hunt forward operation 90 different pieces of malware. Now, that sounds like 90 attacks. It's not malware kind of builds on top of each other. But just think about what that actually means. That's 90 pieces of code that wanted to do something bad in these critical networks. Mm. And so we talked to the head of the SBU, which is kind of like their FBI, CIA, NSA, all sort of in one. His name is Ilya Vituk. And I said to him, so what does that mean? When they pulled all this malware, what does it mean? And they so when they, like, the Russians pushed the button on February 24th and expected all these cyber things to happen. Did it not happen? And he laughed. He said, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's kind of what happened. Mm. Well, let's hear more from Ilya Vitu. They thought that we, our infrastructure, our digital infrastructure will be uh, on its knees. And so this was like a preparation for actual invasion. They started cyber attacks couple of hours before the actual invasion. So we had already our understanding of how to, how to act and what to, to protect. So indeed, they failed. Dina, what occurs to me is, is the level of expertise needed to identify, root out malware. How is that changing the conversation around what it means for a nation to be secure? It was completely changed, uh, the meaning of what that is. And, you know, we have the extra added thing now of AI. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everyone's talking a lot about AI, maybe almost too much about AI. But here's what's interesting about AI and cyber. Uh, AI is going to eventually be able to write malware, probably. It definitely writes better phishing emails, which are the ones you click on because you think it's from your mom. And in the old days, it used to have bad spelling. So at least you knew your mother's spelling was better than that, so it must not be from her. But now that's being corrected with AI and that sort of thing. So it's changing the game. But at least for now, if you talk to most experts, they will tell you that AI is really good at recognizing AI. So AI may be getting better at the phishing email, but AI is also getting better at knowing that this is a technique that AI uses. This is probably AI and puts it in your junk file. So I think we're going to see more of that, uh, not just when it comes to threat intelligence and understanding what the threat is, but I think we're also going to see more of that in terms of defense. And if you talk to people like Rob Joyce, who is uh, sort of the head of cybersecurity for the National Security Agency, he says the one sort of bright spot here, at least for now, is that AI will be a help, at least for a little bit. Well, and and turning back to Operation Hunt Forward, how often does the U.S. deploy people to other nations to provide that type of of cybersecurity support? I thought maybe it happened a few times a year. It turns out every week of the year, there is some sort of contingent from U.S. Cybercom that is somewhere helping allies try to find bad things on their networks. And here's, a, here's the theory behind it, is that if, if there, it's called defend forward. It was a General Nakasone idea that if you go out to where the malware is, where it's less protected, right, because we're considered, the U.S. is considered pretty protected. If you go out there and look for that malware and you find it, then you can bring it home and study it and figure out ways to counteract it and then spread it out to everyone, and you make that particular virus or malware, whatever it is, uh, unable to work. And so the idea is if you're out there doing it out there, particularly with the Ukrainians, for example, then it doesn't have a chance to come to the United States and happen here. So you have governments 
working to protect themselves and others against cyber attacks. Are there independent groups also, hackers who are sort of anti-hacking? I'm remembering the early days of the Russian invasion. You had hackers in Ukraine who were doing some of this on their own or or just providing aid to the Ukrainian government to to protect the country? This is a bit of a double-edged sword. And I think the Ukrainian war uh, is the first time that we've actually seen it institutionalized the way we have. It's called the Ukrainian IT Army. And depending on who you talk to, it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. But the people who are in the Ukrainian IT army aren't really the hackers that you're thinking of with a hood, mm-hmm. uh, with a hoodie on. Uh, they are the hackers who are actually by day working to help others. Uh, they're cybersecurity professionals. And then by night, you know, with their you know, bowl of ramen, they're helping hack or do denial of service attacks against Russia. And uh, the sort of we talked to one of the administrators of the uh, IT army of Ukraine, and most of the administrators are Ukrainian. But they also have like really high level IT professionals from, you know, Finland, Sweden, et cetera, et cetera, all sort of weighing in. Why I say it's a double-edged sword is if, when, if and when the, the conflict actually stops, you're going to have this whole cohort of people who kind of knew how to hack maybe and learned a lot more. We call them script kiddies, which are basically people who copy other people's code. Um, these people who kind of knew how to hack now will have all this expertise. And I wonder if it'll be like, you know, the Spanish Civil War, everybody went to go and fight, and then you had all these mercenaries, right? If And it happened in Afghanistan, too. Are you suddenly going to be training an entire hacker mercenary force that when the conflict is over is kind of itching to do something, looking for purpose? I think that's the downside of what's going on right now. So when we zoom out and we look globally, which nations are the biggest players in, in this cyberspace? Well, interesting. The U.S. always, na- uh, you know, labels them and never names itself. But it's, uh, it's uh, uh, Russia, China, uh, Iran, and believe it or not, North Korea. Mm. North Korea, it basically pays for its missile program by uh, hacking cryptocurrency accounts. And, it's compl- and they're very, very good hackers. And you'd think that they wouldn't be, but... They are uh, among the big four. And so whenever you see some sort of uh, hack, you, just as a layperson, should probably guess, uh, you know, if it's uh, intellectual property that is being stolen, probably the Chinese. If it's cryptocurrency that's being stolen, it's probably the North Koreans. Uh, If it's Iran being hacked, we're working on a – I'm sorry, if it's uh, Israel being hacked, it's probably Iran. We're working on a – uh, episode about that now. And uh, if it's sort of in the satellite of Russia, Poland, Estonia, Ukraine, us, uh, it's probably the Russians. Hmm. And and what about the U.S.? What space do they occupy? Um, they're pretty cagey about the space that they occupy. But let me give you an example of an offensive operation that the U.S. did that I reported on back when I was at NPR. Um, they actually did an offensive operation to take down the media uh, arm of ISIS. And the way they did it is they cracked into their system and they posed as ISIS members and they did all kinds of sort of irritating things that drive you crazy when you're online. So they slowed down their baud rate. So their internet was, was loading really, really slowly. Or they would intercept messages between two members. And so one member would ask someone to upload one of their horrible sort of snuff movies 
he would do that, but then they'd intercept it so it wouldn't be uploaded so that they could see the two members of ISIS arguing with each other uh, about how I told you to upload that. So they were sort of sowing dissension in the ranks. And then they finally took down a server that they had. But so there are lots of different levels to this. And part of the reason why the U.S. is really good at it is that they're very, very creative in the way that they do this. And part of the reason why I think we've seen that Russians haven't been as good as people thought they were when it comes to Ukraine, that they haven't been devastating, uh, you know, the telecom hack uh, today notwithstanding, is because a lot of the creative people who are helping Russia hack have left. Mm. Because if you're creative, you're going to ask questions. You're going to say, why are we in Ukraine? Why is Putin still our leader? So the people who had the ability that might have made Russia be more creative and turn on a dime when it comes to cyber. Uh, at least the Ukrainians told us they think most of them is, have left, and that's why the Russian sort of hacking bear isn't 10 feet tall. As the sophistication uh, of cyber attacks continue, continues to evolve, what do you think that means for global con- conflicts, um, the ones that are occurring now and the ones we'll see in the future? We're already seeing some lessons from the war in Ukraine in the cyber realm today. Uh, we're working on an episode that takes a look at how Iran has stepped up its hacking against Israel uh, and is using hacktivist groups and the same sort of, you know, sort of IT volunteer army against Israel that we saw in Ukraine. And this is only two years into the conflict. So I think we have to understand that uh, that cyber and cybersecurity is no longer sort of a, a bolt-on component of a war, but instead at the very start of the planning of a war, uh, there is a discussion about what the cyber component will contain. Just like you'd say, where are our subs going to be? Where are our boats going to be? Where are our tanks going to be? Where, is, where are our cyber operators going to be? And what are they going to do? I can't help but think about the fact that we are more connected now than we have been at any other point in history. Um, I, I think about the number of screens I look at every day. Uh, everything is is automated and it's online. How should we think about our personal security as this technology continues to evolve? Well, there's this whole idea of Internet of Things, right? I mean, soon your refrigerator will tell you you're almost out of milk. The downside of that is that anyone who hacks into your refrigerator will know you're almost out of milk, or maybe they will know that you haven't opened your refrigerator for two weeks. So maybe you aren't home. So maybe this is a great time to, I don't know, rob your place. Uh, So there's all this information that's going out that we're not controlling in a very real way. And there's not a lot we can do about it aside from trying to do the sort of simple things to keep ourselves safe. And uh, that's, you know, multiple uh, authentication. That's changing your password. I know it sounds really small, but those small things are what the hackers are taking advantage of now. That's Dina Temple-Raston. She's the managing editor and host of Click Here. That's a weekly cyber and intelligence news podcast from Recorded Future News. Dina, thank you so much. Thank you. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stamps.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.